probably most of us at least familiar with the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Who is the first, or excuse me, what is man's chief end? Right, what is man's chief end? Anybody know? Yes, and I know that's a beloved question and answer, but um, I might prefer the first question of the Baptist Catechism, because the first question of the Baptist Catechism is theocentric, which the shorter catechism question was sort of was sort of anthropocentric. It was focused on man's chief end, but the Baptist Catechism starts with this question: Who is the first and chiefest being? Who is most supreme? And the question, the answer is: God is the first and chiefest being. We probably don't say chiefest often. Um, but that is the first question. And the, the beginning of the Baptist Catechism then, which is a revision of the, of the Westminster Shorter, begins with God. And so we come today to the doctrine of God and we will, we will delve into today the most profound and majestic enterprise of study that man could ever seek to inquire of. That is the study of God himself. Uh, I'm calling this tonight... This is not original to me, but um, received theology. And that is, this is truth that is to be received by faith. Right? We, we, we don't quibble over these things so much as we try to apprehend them by faith. We want our study of the doctrine of God to be serious, to be rigorous. We want to ground our any study of theology, but especially of what we call theology proper, the study of God, we want to ground that in the scriptures, certainly. We want to do theology in conversation with 2,000 years of church history and, of course, God revealing himself before that. Um, but we want to be careful not to treat this subject as a, just a sort of scientific study, as if we can put God under a microscope and exhaust the study of God. We come tonight to behold a mystery. Amen. Talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. This is something that is, that is beyond our understanding and capacity. We will tonight, you've maybe been told to not do this, but we will tonight put God in a box because we only have a box. That's all we have. That is our finite limitation and capacity. God has given us that box. He's given us the ability to reason and understand, but it's limited. Amen? Our understanding is limited, so we will take our box and try to speak about the God that is not confined to any box. He is unlimited, if you will. And so we must recognize that there will be limitations. We will, we will come to the ends, to the depths of who God is, and we will stand there and say, wow, look at God, right? Who has known the mind of God? And so um, our, our, our aim tonight in all of this, but I think we want to... We wanna, Especially remember this tonight as we look at the doctrine of God, that the aim of our study of theology is, is that it must end in doxology. Right? If we have studied the person of God and it has not led us to praise and worship, then, then there's a problem. Maybe, this, maybe this, the, the teacher is too dry and abstract, or maybe our heart has yet to really understand why we should delight in the Lord. But our aim is doxology. Our theology ought to lead to doxology. 
And so first and foremost tonight, we come to worship. We come to worship. The very last statement in this chapter is important because it brings this to bear. It says that this doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon Him. And so with those words, we ought to understand that this subject, maybe going against the logic of some, this subject is very practical. It's very near and dear to our hearts and should be more and more. This is how we relate to God. We We have been chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and the Spirit of God has come and applied those works of redemption to us. Uh, You see on on the first page of your handout, there should be two pages. You got an insert there, hopefully. Um, Let's just go over the outline briefly. There's there's only three paragraphs tonight, but they are chock full of meat. Somehow, some way, we're going to try to end this thing at the normal time, 930. Uh, The first chapter we'll call uh, the one true God. Some have called this the attributes of God, God's God's unity. And we see there these eight headings, his singularity, his aseity, his incomprehensibility, his simplicity, his infinity, his sovereignty, his love, and his justice. Chapter or paragraph two are are, are this, this one God's, external relations that is how he relates to his creatures to man specifically but to creation um, more broadly and we'll see his independence from them his sovereignty over them his knowledge of them his holiness before them and his claims upon them and then finally we'll see this one God's internal relations how he relates to himself within the persons of the trinity And we'll see this one God that exists in three subsistences or three persons and then his name and relations. A lot to cover. A lot to cover. So books have been written on each of these headings, volumes of work. So let's get into it. Um, Let me pray one more time if I could. Our Father in heaven, we come now to this glorious study of our God. and, and, And I pray, Lord, that our hearts would... My, my heart, beginning with me, would not just treat this as some sort of academic exercise or some sort of purely intellectual inquiry, um, but that we would approach this subject with awe and reverence, that we would come like a little child that looks up at a, at a, at a glorious mountain with our jaws down on the ground, just in awe of the God that has called us here this evening, that has saved us from our sin, the God that that has summoned us into communion with yourself. So, Lord, we pray that we might once again um, behold this wondrous mystery of our Lord, that we might this evening behold our God, and that we might be changed, that we might be transformed, that our assurance, hope, and confidence in you might be renewed this night, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm just going to walk through this outline as, 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 as quickly as I can. Um, and if you have questions, you can stop me. If not, we'll have some time for that at the end, Lord willing. Um, and so we see, firstly, let me actually read the first paragraph. The first paragraph there, so if you have a confession, it's chapter 2, paragraph 1 um, of the one true God. First, the one true God. The Lord our God 
is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who alone hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, and the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Wow. I want to say a couple things. Firstly, um, some category distinctions as we think about our consideration of God and his attributes and how we speak of, of the Lord. Again, we have our box. We have our finite um, ability to comprehend these things. When we, th- when we speak about God's attributes, we speak about at times, there's a distinction that's been made in church history between the incommunicable attributes and the communicable attributes. Big words just to say there are some attributes of God that are communicated in some way to us as we are made in God's image. You and I have the capacity to love, to show mercy, to exercise justice, right? There is goodness within us. We can be people of truth. And so these are communicable attributes. These are things that we have in a small, uh, deficient, at this time fallen way, redeemed by the, by the Spirit. Um, but we have something of these attributes of God. God, as he has made us, as his image bearers, has communicated these attributes to us. God says, be holy as I am holy. And so in some capacity, man has the ability to be holy. Not as God is, um, but these are shared with us in a deficient manner. Then we have the incommunicable attributes of God. These, th- these things are the godness of God, the things that make him God. God does, not ki- God does not give us his eternality or his omnipresence or his omniscience or his infinity. These are things that are exclusive to the Lord. And so we'll see different categories or different attributes, and you can think of the, them in those ways. But we have to be careful not to, not to relate God to us. Well, I'm, I love and God loves, and so God's just a better at loving than I am. But we're very similar, right? There's a danger there with that. And so there's, there's two ways, more than two, but two simple ways that we like to talk about God. How does a finite mind speak about something that's infinite? Right? We ultimately can't do it completely. I might stand up here and tell you that, that, that God is eternal, meaning God is, not, God is not bound by time. He cannot be because he created it, right? And so in my mind, I have a timeline, and I have God up here in a little cloud, and God is outside of this timeline. But that still doesn't really help us to fully grasp what it means that God is beyond time, outside of time. And so we speak of God in a couple ways. The first 
is by the way of negation or in, in a negative. Not that we speak of God in a bad way, but one of the easiest ways for us to try to communicate about the Lord is when we say what he is not. And so we say that God is without sin. We say that God is not bound by time. We say that God does not change. It's hard for us to say the opposite. And so we say what God is not to try and communicate the things that God is. When we say that God is omnipresent, we say that he is not bound by space. And he's omniscient. He is not bound or limited in his knowledge. And so that is speaking of God by way of negation. It's, it's usually the easiest way that we can try to communicate about something, the infinite God. The other is the opposite of that, and it's by way of eminence. And that is when we say things about God in the superlative. And here you see it in the confession a bunch of times when it says that God is most loving, most gracious, most merciful, most wise, most good. But again, here we need to be careful because you might read that and say, hey, I'm loving, I'm good, God is most good, and so God is like us. He's just an incredible person. He's like an incredible man, perfectly loving. He's just greater than me. And that's not what the confessors are trying to say. They're saying that God is these things in an absolute sense, in a perfect sense. You and I can show love, can understand love, but God is love in his essence. It is who he is, and it is not something that he does, but it is a perfection in God. He is love. In the full definition of what love is, that is what God is. And so don't hear the most and just think a lot better than me. Think infinitely better. But it's a way to communicate by way of eminence that God is these things in the most supreme and absolute sense. And so let's walk through the outline there. We see first the singularity of God. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God. All right, Christians, we are trinitarians lord willing you 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 confess that you are a trinitarian believer and if that if if that's confusing it, it should be to some regard but this is one of the things that sets us apart as christians this is one of the things that basically every cult that has come along the way has denied the doctrine of the trinity so we believe that god is triune right so how many gods do we worship one god right that's something, that's a hill that we die on, right? That, that's an important doctrine. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one, right? There is one true and living God. This is God's unity or God's singularity. There is not three gods. We are not tritheists, um, but we believe in the one true and living God. The Lord, and I love how they, they say this here, the Lord, our God. There's a relational, communal, covenantal language that the Baptist put there um, in that statement. Secondly, we see God's aseity. Now, this is a technical word. It says there that uh, one true and living God whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection. So when we speak of God's aseity, that simply means that God is of himself, that God exists by himself for himself. He's not derived 
from anything else. He does not find his being, his existence, in anything other than himself. Remember when Moses asked God, who, who do I say sent me? What, what am I supposed to tell them your name is? And he says, I am who I am, or I be who I be. I just am. I just exist. There is nothing outside of God for him to appeal to. He simply is and always has been. The, the most basic but profound thing we might say here is simply that God is. God is. And what is this fancy word subsistence? It's used a bit differently at, at different times in the confession. But here it speaks of God's ability to exist in himself, of his own right. He needs nothing outside of himself. He simply is. He's of himself. He has aseity. Thirdly, it mentions the incomprehensibility of God, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. Now, you might have some, and I can sympathize with this thinking, you might have some that would say yes and amen, and you need to do away with all of this technical nonsense because you can't know God. He's incomprehensible. This is a fool's errand. Why are you spending all this time trying to have all this theological language? It's been said like this in church history. We cannot know God in his essence, but we can know him truly. We can't know God in the fullness of his being. If we could, then we would be on his level and he would no longer be the God that was worthy of worship. If we could put him under a microscope and exhaust the fullness of who God is. Amen. It's not a God that's really worthy of worship if we can know him as we know one another. We cannot know him rightly as he is in his nature, in his essence, but we can know him truly. We are exhorted in the scriptures to press on to know the Lord. We are exhorted by Peter to grow, maybe it's Peter, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Right? So that, this is something that God tells us to do. Um, and he has revealed himself that he can be known, but his essence fully is incomprehensible. Fourthly, it speaks of God's simplicity. This is a doctrine of divine simplicity, which is a lot to try to talk about in 30 seconds. But um, it says there that God is a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts or passions who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. And so here we have what's been called classical theism or the classical doctrine of God, the doctrine of God that the church has confessed for millennia. It is the doctrine of God that you would find in the Nicene Creed if we were to read that tonight. Um, and we see three statements there basically in that, in that section we see that God is without body, without parts, and without passions. And so firstly, God is without body. He is a most pure spirit invisible. That is, God has no physical corporal existence. Uh, the, the children's catechism that we use says it very simply, as it always does, who is God? God is a spirit and has not a body like men. Right, so God is... Without a body, God does not have a physical existence. Now, he can, if he pleases, manifest himself to man in some form, right? Uh, when Moses sees the bush that would not burn, it was 
a bush that needed not the fuel of the plant to burn. It was not consuming the bush. Um, in some sense, that was God manifesting his presence for Moses. But I think we would all agree and understand that, that the fire is not God in the sense that God is fire. God didn't necessarily turn his body morph into a fire. God is manifesting his presence for Moses. We just read um, of the smoke and the fire on the mountain and God speaks his presence was there. But God has not a body like men. Jesus, when he speaks to the woman at the well in John 4, 24, says God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Secondly, it says God is without parts. God is without parts. God is a pure, now this word is sometimes confusing, simple being. Now when you hear simple, don't think simplistic. You know, we might think of something, oh, he's a simpleton, or it's just, it's very easy to figure out. We don't mean it in that regard. What we mean is that God is not a composite of parts. God is not made up of various things. All that God is God is. So he's not a little bit of wrath and a little bit of love and a little bit of truth sprinkled together. God cannot be broken up into various parts or elements, but God is pure essence. Um, Mark Jones in that little book there says this, God is free from all composition. He is not the sum of his parts. There is not one thing and another in God. Rather, whatever is in God, God is. He is absolute. There are no distinctions within his being. That should confound the mind a bit. And so what we're trying to do tonight is, is, is collate the revelation of the Bible, right? I'm trying to make sense of its teaching. And then thirdly, it said that God is without passions. God is without passions. Another word that's confusing because it's used in a different way. If... if if we talked about passions today, it'd probably be a good thing, right? He's very passionate about his work. Man, the guy's just a go-getter, right? You would say that, and you would, you would think that's a good thing. But it's used in a different way that's, that's archaic to us. You've heard of, the, of Easter week, and there's a, there's a word we use for that week. Anybody remember what that word is? It starts with a P. Passion week, yes. And, and, and I've, in the past, heard that and thought that, this was his passion because this is what he came to do. That's not what it means. It is his suffering. So when you think of passion, think of the word we might use today is affections. But the idea is that God does not suffer change. I believe if you have the founder's edition, the modern version, it says that God does not have changeable emotions. Changeable emotions, right? And so what we're saying is that unlike you and I, God is not acted upon from external sources that cause him internal change. Now, if I was to stand here and you would come up and you said, hi, pastor, and then you just punched me square in the nose, that's going to change me, right? I'm going to have a visceral response. I'm going to be so godly that I'm going to turn the other cheek. <laughs> that was a joke. Um, I'm, 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 that's going to... That's gonna, cause my blood pressure is going to change all sorts of things you're going to see my face get red and i'm going to be like you know there's going to be a response the opposite of that if you came and gave me a gift it's not a plug to give me a gift but if you gave me a gift then i would have a response i would my emotions would would change within me god is not a patient that is acted upon by an outside source such that he has internal changes 
because of outside forces. Now, we hear that and we think, you're saying that God is just this cold, indifferent being. Now, I know we're, 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 we're talking about some weighty stuff very quickly. Um, the truth is we don't want a God that has passions, right? You don't want a God that flips his lid or loses his cool because of something that happened. God is not in heaven saying, oh, the Assyrians, what? Wrath pouring it out because I'm furious. Now, the Bible speaks at times like that. His wrath is quickly kindled, and we hear that language, but those are anthropopathic words or uh, words that attribute emotions, human emotions, to God. Maybe you've heard of anthropomorphic language. That is when we attribute human attributes to God. We say that God has eyes and ears and an arm, but I don't think most of us read the Bible that God reached out with his mighty outstretched arm and picture an arm coming down from heaven and rescuing people, right? That's not what the text is saying. It's figurative, right? Anthropopathic language is language that, uh, that attributes human emotion so that we can understand um, what the text is communicating about us, about God, because we have our box. But God is not, does not suffer change from external sources. That's what they're trying to say there. Um, he is love, and he shows love not because he saw something in you that was lovable, but he meets out love because of who he is. When he pours out his wrath, it is not that he's given you 20 chances and finally his, his anger has risen and he's frustrated and he's, oh, I'm just going to unleash my wrath. No, he's meeting out justice, but he warns us in terms that we understand that he will kindle his wrath if we rebel against him in sin. That's a huge topic that we just covered in two minutes. Um, so if you have more questions, I have another book, wonderful book, little helpful book on this subject written by Sam Renahan. It's very helpful. I also preached on this subject a year or so ago. Um, uh, I preached a sermon on this subject. You could check that out. So God is without passions. Fifthly, we see God's infinity. It says that he is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, and most absolute. These are those incommunicable attributes. We do not receive these from the Lord. It speaks of the infinite nature of God. His, his immutability is that he does not change, and that's tied to his simplicity, that he does not have passions. He, he, he simply is who he is. He is immense. He's not bound by space. He is everywhere at all times in all places. He is eternal. He's not bound by time. He's incomprehensible. We cannot grasp him. He's almighty, is supreme overall. You, you get the, the thrust here. Sixth, we read that God of his sovereignty, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable or unchanging and most righteous will for his own glory. Now the confession agrees with what our brother Dustin's been teaching us for the last month or so in Sunday school that God ultimately does all things, it says, there for his own glory. And so he is working all things according to the counsel of his own, Ephesians 1, immutable will, most righteous will, and he's doing this ultimately for his praise, for his glory, that we might look to him and say, oh, look at this glorious God. The next two sections there at the end of the paragraph um, have been separated. I think it's helpful in God's love and God's justice. 
Now, when you read there, most loving, that most word is distributed, meaning that it's applied to all of those words. So we would say that God is most loving, most gracious, most merciful, most long-suffering, most abundant in goodness and truth, most forgiving iniquity. All of those are, are modifying, or most is modifying all of those words. He is supreme in all of these attributes. But we might lump that whole section under God's love or God's goodness. And the confessors are, are, are giving us all of these different ways how they're illustrating that this God is a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He's gracious, merciful. He's patient with you. He's abundant in goodness, abundant in truth. He forgives iniquity. He forgives transgression. He forgives sin. He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But eighthly, we also see his justice. And with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. And I love what Pastor Jeff Wisner says here. God is good to judge sinners. God is good to judge sinners, to mete out his divine justice. That is a good thing. When we see, when, when we see a, 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 in our day of rampant injustice, right? I saw a headline today, and it said a man raped multiple girls, and he got like 180 days in jail, right? How many times have you seen headlines like that, and you shake your head, and you you want to weep at the injustice. When we see a wicked thing happen and the law finally brings right justice, we say, yes, that's good. That is right. What he did was evil. That punishment was deserving of the crime. And so God is good to judge sinners, to hold men to account for their actions when they refuse to receive his mercy. So chapter 2, or paragraph 2, is God's external relations. How does God relate to his creation, and specifically to his creatures, or to man, excuse me? So paragraph two, God having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself, is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature with which he hath made, not deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He alone is the fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And he hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleases. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto the Creator, and whatever he is further pleased to require of them. James Renahan says that the words and phrases here build like a musical crescendo, calling all living things to bow in awe before the Holy Lord. And so the confession is reiterating some of the things that we just read, but they're now in relation to man, these attributes. And so I think there's five here in this section. Firstly, we see his independence from them, that is, the creature, his independence from them. 
God having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, here's his aseity, in and of himself is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is alone the fountain of all being. And so they again seek to assert God's aseity, God's self-existence. He is of himself, but it's now in contrast to man. Without saying it, we recognize that man is insufficient and dependent. Amen? We need a, a certain mixture of elements in the air to breathe, to live. Because of God's providence and his common grace towards man, the air continues to exist as it does, but if things were to change the chemical makeup, not all that much, we would all kill over in this place and be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. Hallelujah. Um, we, we need a certain fairly small temperature range to be able to exist and to live and to thrive. Right? We are utterly dependent creatures. We need food every so often. We need water every so often. We cannot go long without these things, but God is of himself. God is wholly sufficient of himself. He does not become glorious because of man. He did not create man because there was some need within himself. He reveals his glory to man as he chooses. And so it also says there that all being, all existence has its source in God. And so he is wholly independent from the creature. He exists on his own. If everything else was erased, God would be perfectly stable as he is. Secondly, we see his sovereignty over the creature. Of whom, through whom, and to whom, that's him, are all things. And he hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleases. That is, God has the royal prerogative to do as he pleases with his creation, upon his creation. He made it. Think of the words of Daniel chapter 4. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand and say to him, what have you done? He has utter sovereignty over the creation. He has the crown rights to all. Thirdly, we see his knowledge of the creature, his knowledge of them. In his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, it is infallible, and it is independent upon the creature, so as nothing to him is contingent or uncertain. So God's knowledge of your affairs is not contingent upon your choices of what you will do. God knows all things because he is God. It is not contingent based upon a, 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 a scenario of events. All things are open to God. He knows the future infallibly. Listen to what Sam Waldron has to say 
His eternal decree, which we'll get into next week, His eternal decree determines the future. It is not our actions ultimately that determine the future. His decree determines the future. Thus, knowing Himself and His decree, His knowledge is infinite. So God knows all things. All things are open to Him. Uh, and that word is important for... Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a doctrine of God, not really in our circles. I don't think there would be a danger for most in this church or in our sort of circles that we run in that, there, that this would infect us. But there's a doctrine called open theism. Maybe you've heard of it, open theism. It's a very deficient doctrine of God where it says the future is open. But what they mean is that God can't know the future because it hasn't happened yet. And yes, he's infinite. Yes, he's God. He created. But how can he know tomorrow? Because tomorrow hasn't happened. And the confession is asserting, because the scripture asserts that, no, his knowledge is infinite and infallible of, of today, of yesterday, and of tomorrow. And the, the test, as, as we see in Isaiah, of the false gods and the prophets is, is, can you predict tomorrow, but also, why did the things that happened yesterday happen? And God can give the reason for yesterday, and he can predict what is going to come tomorrow. Fourthly, his holiness before them, that is before the creature. He is most, there's that word again, most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. Now we think, not we, but man, especially, probably always in some regard, but man today, autonomous man, independent man, uh, thinks that he, can, that he can call God to account. We think that so often we can stand in judgment of God. And you've probably had a conversation with someone about the Lord, and they would say, I cannot believe in a God that would do this or allow this or would take away blank name from me. Right? Standing in judgment of what God has done, of who God is. Now, there's a real wrestle with the problem of evil. It's not a simplistic answer that we respond, right? As Christians, even Christians that love the word and believe in the sovereignty of God, it is a difficult philosophical question of how does a good God allow and even ordain evil. There's not a simplistic answer for that, but we are the ones that ought to stand in reverent fear of God and submit to his counsel, submit to his will, to say we are the ones that ought to say, I don't have all the answers, I don't have it all figured out, but God is good and just and holy, and I bow and submit there. So he is most holy before his creatures. And fifthly, we see his claims then upon them. To him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto the creator and whatever else he is further pleased to require of them. And so the confessors list three things that, that man owes God. Worship, service, and obedience. Now, now notice here, um, we're not talking in this section about Christians. We're not talking about redeemed humans. We're talking about creatures. We're talking about angels and men, period. And what they're saying is, because he is the creator, we owe him worship, service, and obedience. Now, now can a pagan, unregenerate man worship God rightly? Give him the right prescribed praise that he is due. The pagan doesn't understand that he is to worship God in spirit and truth through Jesus Christ. 
But be that as it may, man owes allegiance to his creator simply because he is creature, man is creature, and God is the creator. We owe service, allegiance to him. And, and they, and they uh, one pastor points this out, but I think it's helpful. The, 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 the um, excuse me, the writers here um, understand that we are fallen and we are often looking for a, a loophole, a way out. So we might come to this and say, okay, I've offered to God worship, service, and obedience, but I'm going to compartmentalize this one area of my life, or I don't have to submit this to the Lord. And so they add that little, that little clause there, whatever else he is pleased to require of them. That is, God has the right over us in every way. Amen. He has complete claim upon your life to command you to do whatever he feels like commanding you to do. Was God unjust when he commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? Now, if, if again, if we, if, we, if we don't approach that, that question with a sort of simplistic response, we have to admit that that's a difficult thing to wrestle with, right? Um, what would you say to God if God commanded you to do that same thing? I would say, God doesn't speak anymore. You're the devil. Get behind me. Right, what, what, would God say that? Now, I know we're, 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 we're asking silly questions now, but my point is, um, God had the authority to say that, to command him. Now, God had a purpose, right? God had a purpose in that, in that event, ultimately to foreshadow the Christ, um, but God was not unjust. God, God can do as he pleases. He has claim on our, on our lives. If he, if, he, if he wants to take our life in a moment, he has the authority to do that. He has, he, has the, he has the ability to do that, and he's good in that. He remains good in that. And so he has claim upon your life, upon your soul. And so we owe him worship, service, and obedience, whatever else he might ask. So that is, that is God's external relations to man, how God relates to, to us. He's independent from us, sovereign over us, has infallible knowledge of all things pertaining to us and everything. He is holy before us, and he has claims. There is due that we owe God because he is the creature. So now we get into paragraph three, and this is, this is sort of the maybe the most lofty of the three paragraphs, the most difficult of the three paragraphs. And we come here to, to God's internal relations. God's internal relations. That is how the persons of the Godhead, of the Trinity, relate to one another. In this divine, paragraph three, an infinite being, there are three subsistences, think persons, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. Of one substance or essence, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally, that word is important, eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. 
and yet all are infinite, without beginning. Therefore, but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but is to be distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon Him. Let me read two questions with that from the larger catechism. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There be three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. Number 10, this is not in your book, this is Westminster. Number 10, what are the personal properties of the three persons of the Godhead? It is proper to the Father to beget the Son, and to the Son to be begotten of the Father, and the Holy Ghost to proceed from the Father and the Son from all eternity. So here we now dive into the deep end of the pool, into this realm of mystery, right? And again, I've called this received theology because these are things that we need to receive by faith, right? The, the confessors here, as they're, as they're building on and leaning on the, the Nicene Trinitarian doctrine of the church, that is the doctrine that was, that was um, explicitly laid down in the Council of Nicaea and, and codified for us in the Nicene Creed, they are confessing that historic doctrine, um, but they're not trying to explain the Trinity necessarily as much as they are trying to collate the biblical data, just present the things that God says. How do we put the pieces together and say what God says? I want to read to you a quote from Sam Waldron. He says, This doctrine of the Trinity is a divine mystery. It is a misconception of the creeds of the church generally and of the Nicene Creed specifically, which is summarized here, to think that they intend to explain this mystery. He said, actually, we see the opposite with the heresies. There is a heresy known as, we would call it today, modalism, but in history it's known as Sabellianism or monarchianism. And what this says is that there is, there is one God who can exist in different modes of existence at different times. So in the Old Testament, he revealed himself as the Father. In the Incarnation, he reveals himself as the Son. And now he manifests himself as the Spirit. But he's one. He's not these three at the same time. He's one God wearing different hats, if you will. And, and he, what he's saying is modalism was an, was an attempt to explain away the confusion or the mystery of the Trinity. It's a way for man to say, the Trinity doesn't make sense. We have to say it differently. That's not right. Another approach that men took to try to, to, try to put this mystery in our box is known as Arianism. This is what our friends, uh, Jehovah Witnesses, would confess today. And that is to say that Jesus Christ and the Spirit um, are not God in the full sense of the word. They might be deity in some regard. They have a spark of the divine, but they are not equal with the Father. Um, that is the Arian heresy, which really sparked the need of the Nicene Creed. 
He says both of these options, these heresies, would have resolved the logical tension in the doctrine of the Trinity. We look at that and we say, how can God be one in three? Right? Our mind says that can't be. Yet the church refused to adopt these viewpoints. It instead maintained the mystery by maintaining that God was in one sense one and in another sense three. It asserted that God was ultimately both one and three. One essence or substance and three persons or subsistences. The creeds of the church seek to fence this mystery, not explain it. So the creed is just saying, this is what the Bible says. We can't grasp it all. We can't figure it all out. We don't understand it fully, but it says very clearly that we believe in one God, and it says very clearly that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, and the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, etc., he goes on to say, um, the incomprehensibility of God means that the doctrines of the faith will involve holy mysteries which transcend human reason and contradict fleshly wisdom. Such mysteries must be accepted with humility and reverence by an intellect weaned from the arrogant and foolish notion of rationalism that finite and fallen human reason can comprehend the divine being. Again, we just bow at these things in awe of what God has said. Um, so let's try to think through this, this statement here uh, on the doctrine of God. I have two sections in the outline. And firstly, is that simply how we've said this in history, that there is one God but three persons. The confession there says three subsistences. Now, the Westminster Confession there says persons. And the Baptists changed it to subsistences. And basically, they're saying the same thing, but this is the technical term. And one of at least the reasons for that is because the Westminster is in 1646. This is in 77. And over this 30-year period, the, the idea of persons had become muddied. And there were heretics that were trying to twist what the church meant by persons, teaching a form of tritheism. That if there's three persons, there has to be three gods. And so the Baptists, wanting to be clear with their Trinitarian doctrine here, changed that word to subsistences. But they're saying the same thing that Westminster said. And basically it says there that there are three persons or three subsistences in the one essence or the one being of God. These share the same power and eternity they each have the whole divine essence. We don't split up God into three different gods. They don't each have a piece of God. They are each fully God. And yet in some mysterious way, they are distinct as they are each three divine persons. And the way that the Bible has largely separated or distinguished the persons is by their names and by their relations to one another, and this is what the handout in the middle of your um, of your out, of your outline has. This single paper here, and so let's just look at some of this biblical data. And so we have first the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians one and three, and so we we understand that the fatherness. The fatherhood, if you will, of God 
does not originate in his being the father of the church or the father of believers, but it is in the fact that he is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we learn in the Bible that the father begets the son. The son never begets the father, but the Bible says that the father begets the son. The technical term there is paternity. You see in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish. And so we learn in these texts and others that the father begets the son. The son is of the father. He is, technical term again, generated by the father. Maybe you've heard someone talk about eternal generation. And so with that data, we come to the conclusion, as the confession says, that the father is of none. This is how the the Bible speaks of the father. He is not begotten. He is the begotter, if you will. He is of none other. He is the father of Jesus Christ. And then we come to the son, and we read that the son is begotten. And there's an important word there, eternally begotten. There is not a time that he was not the son or a time when the son was not. The technical term there is filiation. He is the eternally begotten son of the father. He is not the father. He is not the spirit, but he is the son of the father. John 5, 26, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. His years have no beginning and no end. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And thus his sonship confounds our comprehension. Because as we think about human fathers and human sons, there is a time when that son began, when that son was begotten. And we don't want to think about that in the sense of of Jesus being born as God. But he always, as he relates to the father, is the son of his father. He is, we read in the text, the Father's eternal word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He is the Father's eternal image. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That is, he is the perfect imprint and express revelation of the Father as they both share the divine essence. Thirdly, he is the radiance of the Father's eternal glory. Hebrews 1, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And so what we're trying to show here is that um, the Bible says things about all the persons of the Trinity, and it also distinguishes their names and their roles or the way they relate to one another. The Father is of none. The Son is begotten of the Father. And then we come to the Spirit. The Spirit we read, proceeds from the Father and the Son. Another technical term there is spiration or eternal procession. Um, We read in Matthew chapter 10 that, that the Spirit is the Spirit of the Father. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. But we also read that he's the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of the Son. Galatians 4, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And because of the perfect unity of the Godhead, both of those can be said. 
Romans 8 and 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So do, do we want to read that text and say there's two spirits? Spirit of God and spirit of Jesus? Well, there's one spirit and the persons of the Trinity are distinct and yet so united that, that you can speak of the spirit of God or the spirit of Christ as the same person. Um, the Spirit always proceeds from the Father and the Son. He is breathed forth. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. We see all these texts of the Spirit being breathed out, the Spirit being poured out. Um, he always is proceeding from the Father and the Son. So all of this to say that the persons are all have the essence of God, the full divine essence of God, but they are distinct. And the key ways that the Bible distinguishes them is by their names and their relation to one another. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All are infinite without beginning, therefore but one God who is not to be divided in nature and being, but as we just saw, distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. So what is our aim in all of this? There's a lot here. There's a lot here. Our aim is really to come to the point that Paul comes to after he minds the glories of the gospel for 11 chapters in the book of Romans when he finally just stops and says oh the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments how inscrutable are his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. And finally, it says there, this doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon Him. These confessors saw this doctrine as vital for the church, but also for our communion. We commune with God distinctly with the persons of the Trinity. And I know I recommend a lot of books, but if you are curious about that, John Owen has an incredible volume called Communion with God as he minds out how we commune with the three persons of the Trinity. It's, it's, it's a glorious devotional.